Episode 71, Leading Remote Teams to Cultivate a Collaborative Business Culture with Elon Hassan. Welcome to the story in your head. I'm Ron Macklin, and today Deb, myself, and guest Elon Hassan explore how to lead a remote team while cultivating a collaborative business culture through empathetic listening and embracing a diversity of perspectives. Welcome to the Story in Your Head podcast. Today, our guest is Elon Hassan. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Um, if I could, could you give me like a brief introduction of who you are? Sure. And like what you do? Yeah. So I'm a renewable energy developer based in Portland, Oregon. My company develops large-scale, utility-scale renewable energy projects, mostly wind and solar. We've been around for since 2018. And prior to that, I worked at some of the larger developers in the world, wind development in on the West Coast and the Midwest and in the South. Prior to that, I worked on political campaigns and in government relations and practiced law. So came with sort of eclectic background and it's kind of an eclectic chat. Wow, thank you. Hey, today we want to talk a little bit about business culture. Mm -hmm. That sound okay? Yeah. Like just to kick it off, what does that mean to you? What does business culture mean to you? Yeah, so I think first, I mean, I start at the mission level, like we're very mission driven. I, I got into renewable energy because I, I wanted to work on climate change and got tired of doing it at the policy level. And I also believe that at the on the market side was a lot better avenue to pursue those results. So, uh, but I bring with me the political and sort of organizing background where you're you're really mission driven. And so, you know, we're doing things, it, it's, it's not just a job, it's, it, it's it, you know, it, it's, it's things we believe in, things we want to do. So I, I always, I think I'd start the culture there. I really make sure that the team knows why we're doing this and, and why it's important and how it fits in. So if we're building a wind farm, for example, you know, you have to understand it's, you know, how it's affecting the energy grid, what, what the contribution is, because it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a very large issue to sort of wake up in the morning and feel like you can make any progress on but if you start breaking it down to small bites, it starts to get more interesting. So I, I'd say that's the first thing when I think of culture is, is the mission of like what the why people are doing things. And then and, and then I find that finds it builds a really good foundation for the internal communications. I guess the next thing I think of is culture is how we communicate with one another and the values within that. And so within the context of what we're trying to save the planet, do that through the energy transition. And, in the, and what we're really good at is developing projects. So in that, how do we help each other? How do we, since we're all moving towards this one goal, it, you know, if, if someone's fallen behind, how do we pick them up? You know, it's not like, hey, you did, you did this wrong. It's like, hey, we got a, we got a big goal here and I kind of need you moving. So how, how do we get you moving? What do, what do you need? So I don't know. That's how I think of culture. Oh, thanks, Elon. Now, I know you've got a kind of a remote team. You're kind of just spread out around the mm -hmm. world. Can you kind of describe what it's like to lead a, yeah. a group or business that's so remote? So, yeah, I mean, first and foremost, it was all COVID, you know, but for COVID, I don't know what we would have done. I, I certainly wouldn't have built a team that was globally based, but, you know, we were stuck in our basements and I needed some help. And so I went on a gig work site and found Jamie. And so we started working remotely and we were... I was pretty intentional about not making everything as transactional as most of our 
you know, meetings are. So we have, I would schedule unstructured meetings where we wouldn't have an agenda. We wouldn't be meeting for a very, very direct purpose, but we would have it a little more broad field. And it was largely so I could teach a lot of what goes on in development and try and recreate some of the osmosis you get in the office space. And then we kind of took that to another level and did even a more unstructured meeting as a team on Fridays. We, we do a, a checkout meeting, which is where I deliberately try and not try and talk about any of the things we did during the week. Like it's never about like how this lease got signed or didn't get signed, but it's much more like how we interact as humans together and how we're communicating and you know what, what our experience is as, as people working together. And we found that to be you know, really effective in a world where we didn't travel. So, uh, you know, keeping it, keeping a small team and having it and just building that time in where we're simulating talking as we would in an office space around a water cooler. And then I, I would say that we did that for, so it was for, it was three years where I never met one of my people on my team who lived in Bali. And then I hadn't met Jamie who lives in Argentina. I had met her for two years and just this May, for the first time, we all got together in New Orleans at a conference, and it was uh, it was it was magical just to see like everyone was kind of fast friends. It was like we all knew each other, and it was just we were just seeing each other in three dimensions. So lots of yeah, I mean, a lot of intentionality, a lot of thought going into like how are we going to communicate and talk with each other when because like just doing it over email is not going to work. It's, it's a little too sterile. Yeah, that's that's what I heard from you is purpose. Uh, that you created that purpose. I think a lot of people might have been caught off guard during COVID that, oh my gosh, we do have all these water cooler conversations and all of a sudden, what do we do to replace that? And I know some companies didn't replace that, right? They lost a piece of that. Mm -hmm. So you've been continuing to foster that? Yeah, I think it's just, you know, my, I have been continuing to foster that because it's, it's just kind of the environment I want to work in. I, I, I will definitely say, like, if we had this conversation in March of 2020, I'd say, yeah, it can't be done. You can't create that culture. I don't know how this is going to work. So we learned that we can, you know, we're adaptable and there's there are ways of doing these things. And my hope is this broad, abstract term of intention sort of can carry us, you know, just keeping that goal in front of us. Like, well, let's let's strive to be a team. And that means something more than, you know, can you get me this top paper I asked you for two days ago? And yeah, I think we've, we, I, I endeavor to meet with everybody once a week on a one-on-one -on -one meeting. That's a little bit more project focused and like catching people up and, and trying to teach them because development, when I learned development, I was in a shop of 18 people and I had two brilliant people who were two levels above me. I had three people that were really above me, but were my peers Like four people below me who were, and that was at my learning environment. Cause it's a, it's a very, I, I mean, I really call it a practice kind of like medicine or, or law where you're just constantly learning it. It's not like, you know, like, Oh, I, I do this now. It's I, every day I learn something new, but in today's world, you know, it, it, you don't have that. Um, especially when it's remote, like I, you don't, I, I would learn things cause I'd be eavesdropping on my neighbor's conversation doing a, interconnection request with BPA and, you know, the system impact study was going to come in at $30,000 more than it was before. And we'd be like, what, what happened there? And, you know, so recognize we need to recreate that in a way that's, and it's hard to reach, it's hard to do that. But I, I found the intentional and structured meetings to be, you know, very helpful where we have loose agendas, but really we're hoping those conversations meander a decent amount. So I'm just speculating that, you know, 
you, you may have perfect people. They don't make any mistakes, yes. right? They, that could happen. That could happen somewhere in the world. But how do you deal with those, those breakdowns, those mistakes, those errors that people make? Yeah, let me see. I mean, I think that a lot of it is we stay in communication quite a bit and we, had, and we really do attack things as a team. So generally mistakes are in the process. It, it, it's, we don't, so yeah, when things go wrong, how do you, how do you work on it? I mean, we're, we, we try and not to do things where people go away for like 10 days and then come back with a product. So it's not like, where did this come from? In fact, that's, I'd say one of the things we strategize to make sure that doesn't happen is regular check-ins and, and I, I, you know, honestly, it's not that the team doesn't make mistakes. It's just that one person or team in particular, Jamie is just very good at making sure things don't go that long before mistakes are found. We, we kind of had a good opportunity. One of the first things we did as a team was we closed on a project and we had to go through all of our materials and QAQC became, we actually found a problem in, in, in something because the QAQC wasn't good. And we, that was one of the first lessons learned we did was just like having QAQC as being a kind of an important function of what one does. And particularly with maps, because there's usually a subject matter expert who's really good at all the KMZs and shape files and, and it's kind of a black box. And so you don't get to see a product until it goes out and it, that can be a problem. And so we kind of backtrack that. And I, I'm, I think I'm pretty aware of a lot of the mistakes I'm prone to. Like I'm, I have lots of typos. My writing isn't very strong and I, I kind of know where I'm going to make mistakes. And so Jamie's, we've developed enough systems that we're, we're catching a lot of those ahead of time. So, yeah, I think, I think a lot of it is, or maybe we're a little slower and a little more deliberate and we, we, we cut out, we don't go a long time without talking. So I'd say that's one way we address it. You might've been thinking something more specifically though. No, that's fine. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. It's interesting because oftentimes people will tend to use email if they're, if they're in disparate geographic, you know, geographies and things like that, but you've really gone to making those conversations. And, and I'm curious about, how scalable that is. Like, what do you think about that? Oh, that's a great question. I, I, I don't know. I'm leery of scale. So one of the things I did, I ran the campaign here, coordinated campaign in 2004 for the presidential and actually a July 19th, June 16th, we had four people working for us on November 2nd, we had 1500 people. So we built that all up in four months. So, wow. and I hated that. I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I was definitely the first, you know, the first people hired. I built the team. I built my core team, just top-notch managers, and we were awesome. And then my boss was just like, you need to like triple in size. I was like, no, it's going to destroy everything. He's like, don't care. And uh, and so I saw how to scale. And I just, you know, I like having my core and like doing it really good. And you have to do that so that you can scale, but like inevitably it deteriorates, right? I mean, you just can't have the same product that 1,500 people that I have with six. So in this business, it's obviously a lot more dramatic there. So it's, it's a question of how much culture you want to give up to how much you want to grow. Right now, our culture is really, really strong. We're having conversations about bringing more people on. And, you know, there's a lot of like, hey, this is pretty good. This is, this is pretty fun. Like we like each other. We get along really well. We're productive. And, you know, if we grow, that's going to change. So, I mean, can we add a couple more people? Yeah. You know, can we be 20 people? It's not not my vision. I think we could certainly. I think I could make a company that didn't have what we have twenty better, but it wouldn't. But it's 
pretty good here. So I, you know, I, I it would, it would deteriorate a little bit. I, I definitely think like the, I think you'd have to, I think you'd have to keep it in small groups. So if I were to double in size, say if we were 12 people or 15 people, I think you'd almost need to have like two groups that are sort of interchanging all the time. So you can have that sort of interaction with folks because there are people who like to talk in meetings like this or people who don't like to talk and everyone needs to kind of be exposed to each other. So I, you know, having people have enough opportunity to participate is key. So yeah, it's, it's, it, it's pretty hard. It's not, it's not something I'm great at. So like my buddy came in and helped us scale up for that 2004 campaign. He's, he's good at the scaling part. And I'm good at the core part. So yeah, I don't know how much it scales. I think I can grow another 20% with a decent amount of work and, and keep the keep it what it is. I think 40%, I'm going to have to give up something. And if I grew 50%, I think it would be a different culture. Not radically different, not, not, not binary, but like it, it would be different. Yeah. I'm curious. You mentioned a couple of times that what would you have to give up in your culture? Yeah. What are those things? Well, right now it's really, it's my vision. You know, it's, it's my baby. It's my company. I started it. It's named after my daughter. Like it's, in fact, I spent the first two years transitioning from the Elon show to the Emerald show. And I think now with, with the team there, it's Emerald has a philosophy. But one of the key things in culture is is inclusion and buy-in. So by definition, I, you know, the people around me are they're like me, but they're also a little different. And so if I wanted to, if we wanted to grow, I, their culture would start to need to come in. And that would be different from my culture. And I think it would be, there'd less, be less me to go around and there'd be more of us to go around, but it, it would, it would change a little bit. So I think, so yeah, so I think that, that, that's one way it would change. And, you know, deliberately using words like different, not better or worse. Like it might be, it might be, it might be better, but I think we not, I think our team acknowledged what we have now is really good. So there's a question of like, I, I don't think it would be like, I think if I doubled in size, I don't think it'd be twice as good. I think if we increase 50% in size, it could be, twice as good, but you know, you have to define what does good mean? Like, how does that, what does that really look like? Are there threats or what are the threats that you see for your culture? Like for oh, culture. developing it, keeping it now or growing it. What are those threats? Like, what does it show up? Growth, I think is a threat, right? It's an opportunity and it's a strength and, a, and a, it's an opportunity and a threat. I, I think it's natural to want to grow. I, I, for me, it is like, I want to just do more. I mean, it's part of our mission is to we're on climate change. I want to do more. To do more, I need more people. And we all want to do more. So there's there's constantly a push to, to do more. And I think, and part of me is a little worried in terms of a threat that if I don't do more, I might actually be losing ground. I can't tell you why, but it's just sort of an instinct. Like if we were to stay at this group and just do this much work all the time and we didn't grow, just laws of physics say that's not a, you know, things don't stay in stasis. They go up and down, Right. So, so I think that's, that, that's a threat to, to the culture. And once that, once you bring in that new element, again, that can really change things. I mean, the main question I'm facing is just like, well, so I want to grow. And so a good friend asked me like, the question is not, do you want to grow or not? Is how, do you want to get bigger? Do you want to increase your margins? Do you want to do more projects? Do you want to make more money? Like what, what is it? How do you want to grow? And that's, again, it's, that can change the culture. Just like, well, if we want just more people, like I, I come from an organizing background where I would just 
I, I mean, if it were up to me and if I had all the resources in the world, I would hire everybody and just train them and spend the time and just grow people, grow people's skills. But not everyone likes doing that. You know, a lot of people are like, no, it takes me longer to train somebody and I like doing this work. And why would I want to teach someone else that? That's a cultural difference. And for me, I, I look at my job as trying to replace myself. Like as soon as I can teach someone to do my job, I can, I go do something else. Some people are like, no, no, I like doing my job. I don't want someone else to come in and do this. I really like doing this. So if I had more people, I might have more people who want to do that. And then we don't grow as much. And then that's changed. Inclusion, you know, growth is, I'd say growth in terms of culture, what changes the culture is more people in changes the culture. When you were um, interviewing for the people you hired now, yeah, like, like what were you looking for in their culture? I mean, the first thing I look for is a passion for climate change to, to make a difference. Like I want people to want to wake up in the morning and, and almost in every single person. In fact, this was really fun. We, at the end of our first year together, we had our yearly checkout and everyone like turned out, everyone had written down a vision for what they wanted to do, the job they wanted to have. They were all unhappy in the work they were doing and they were doing all of that in this job and, and myself included, like. I started out with a vision like, I want to work on the market side of renewable energy. I had no idea what that was. Like, remarkably unqualified for doing any of the work. But it was, just like, it was just like that vision of it. And everyone had that same, everyone had their own little thing. Like, Anthony, who you knew, you know, he was just like, he was working in sports and like wanted to have more meaning in his life and wanted to have a job because he was doing contracting the whole time. And, and you know, and there, there was a one to live in Portland, one to work with people who wanted to teach him. And it was just like, it was like all these things were this job. So my interview questions are a lot of what do you want? Like, what kind of person are you? We always start hiring someone by giving them a task that is within the business, but really leans on their individual skill set. So they're, I want to see how they work with something that they're pretty good at and something how they work with that's a little bit new to them. Because at the end of the day, this is about learning. Like you've got to be an avid learner and you have to be kind of fearless in what you don't know. So those are the kind of questions I ask of like, you know, why do you want to do this? What kind of things can you do? And then it's usually me being creative enough to come up with a task that shows them that they have confidence that they can do this, if they in fact can, and also gives me some insight into their methods of working. You mentioned about having a vision or they had a vision. Is that a, like a requirement to be a part of it? Did you request they write a vision for that or, or they just had a vision and you were looking for somebody who had the vision? I was looking for someone who had a vision, but I do ask, I do tell people, I, I interviewed this guy the other day or the other week. I was like, you know, my spiel is like, this is a climate company. We're focused on the energy transition. We're, we're, we're changing. We're doing the energy transition. We're focused on development because that's what we're good at. And that's where we drive success. And that's, that's what we are. And the guy said, yeah, man, if I can get, if I can make a lot of money doing it, that'd be awesome. I'm like, cool. I'll work with them. They'll never hire. Mm-hmm. Like I, I can't, that's not my job. And we, we pay people well. I, I want everyone to make money, but like the motivate, like you got to come in here. It's, I think it's too hard to be motivated by money. Actually, that's not true. I don't know how to teach someone who's not motivated by climate change. Because for me, it's just like, that's where, that's where I always come down to. And it's hard. It's just like, Hey, I know it's hard. This has never been done before. Yeah, you're right. This doesn't make sense. Yeah. It's really hard calling landowners, but guess what? That's why it hasn't been done yet. That's why we're in this situation. So you got to go, you got to go solve a problem, man. We'll, we'll get to landowners in a second, <laughs> but you, you, it's almost like the ante to get into your business, to work with you. Yes. Is you got to have the passion first around yes. climate change. Yep. 
Yeah. I, 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 my thought is like, I, I can't teach everybody, but I can, I will try and teach you if you care. And if you care, mm-hmm. I think I can teach you. I, not everybody. I mean, the job, I mean, we've, we've definitely cycled out of people early on. It was like, yeah, you guys, you just don't have it, man. Like they might be, they might really be, you know, it's one thing like being like, yeah, I'd like to work in climate change. It's another thing being like, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm going to figure this out. Like I'm going to nose the grindstone and you give me a system impact study. I will read it, you know, fall asleep. I'll wake up again. I'll read it again. And I'll just keep going until I understand it sufficiently that I can make a difference. Are you looking to strengthen your relationships, whether personally or professionally? You want to learn how to build authentic connections faster, or perhaps you're looking to beat employee burnout through the power of connection. My name is Ron Macklin, founder of Macklin Connection. And in our workshops, we teach you the fundamentals of how to do exactly that and more. To learn more of the power of your relationships, visit us at MacklinConnection.com. Well, now, this is like the culture of your group, right? Yeah. That we're talking about as uh, five, six, whatever many people there are, right? And then you have projects that you're developing all over the country that have all different cultures yeah. where you go. So if you could, like, how do you dance with all those cultures? Like you're creating your own culture, but you're also dancing with others' cultures. Yeah. I mean, I, I love it. Like I, I, I just, I have really good friendships with people all across the country and definitely in demographics that I would never, ever be friends with. It's, it's relationship building. You know, it's not something you go in and say, Hey, I'm a wind developer. Will you sign up? And they say, yes. And that's it. It's like you, you, you get to know each other over time. And I, I do a lot of empathic listening. I do, you know, I work very hard on not judging people. Oh, hold on. Hold on. Yeah. Empathic listening. Tell me about that one. Yeah. Empathic listening. It's listening, not to respond, to really understand what the other person, where the other person is coming from. And it's like, you, you want to put them, you want to put yourselves completely in their world so that you can communicate to them that you really understand what they're doing. So, I mean, the, the, you start off with empathic listening, just repeating like, you know, like you don't like Joe Biden. That's right. Yeah, I don't like Joe Biden. But if you just say it like that, it's just like, they're like, okay, cool. You're repeating what I say. But when you really kind of like, you know, you're listening to people like, you know, what's the, why don't they like him? And not with the idea of, but this, it's like, no, no, no. I, when I'm talking to them, I'm completely in their world and I completely get why they're talking about it. And I completely agree with them too. Cause it's, it's, you're, you're really present with them. And that gives me a lot of insight because, you know, it turns out no one's stupid. Like people come to the world with different lens and they have different sets of things that they've learned in life. And, and that's great. And it's important for me to learn that. And then what it does is it, it creates this space where they start to be like, Oh, wow, this guy is actually listening to me. I get what I get more often than not is Elon. I hear all this about Portland. I thought everyone there was crazy. Like, how do you survive there? It's just like, well, Portland is crazy. <laughs> um, and, but it's just, it's, it, and then honestly, the place where I can bond with every single person across the political spectrum anywhere in the country is just like, I can be like, even if we're having a fight, I can go, look, look, you and I have a lot more in common. The media is what really drives us apart. And they're like, absolutely. Everyone gets that they're being manipulated by the media. And, you know, I'm, I'm too. So that's empathic listening. Thank you. Yeah. So I, yeah, so I love it. So I, I so every situation is different. I mean, I will say like, so what I tell people 
So there's a big push for land. Everyone wants to get land now. And people are like, Elon, go get us some land. I'm like, I can't just like go get you land. Like there's gotta be something to it. And they're like, well, why? And like, cause when you talk to a landowner, you actually have to be genuine and like have to be, understand what it, if it's good for them or not and understand why it's good for them. Now to be clear, like I, I think I, I come to it with most wind farms are going to make the farmer's life better. Like, but it, that doesn't mean I'm always right. And I have to sort of be critical as I'm talking to the, to the landowner and be like, well, what are you doing on your land? So the first wind farm we did, which I'm very proud of is in Mississippi. And it's the first wind farm done in Mississippi. And it's the first one done on rice fields. Now, typically when you lay out a wind farm, you run the wind model through this big fancy computer and it says, put the turbines here, 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 and here. And that's the optimal wind resource so they don't wake each other up. And a lot of times I'll go in the middle of the field. Now for a, a you know corn or wheat, it's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a headache, but it's, it, it's manageable. For a rice farmer, it's not manageable. They have, they flood their entire field, right? And there's a lot of them now laser grade their fields. So they've got like a very, very, very steady ramp down. So it drains to a specific spot. They, they spend all their money and time getting these berms right, keep the water in place. You put a road through the middle of it, you mess up all the drainage. I can't give you a crop payment because it's not just the land I'm destroying. It's, it's, it's everything else around it. And so this was what I learned from my, one of my favorite landowners in Mississippi. And it was just him teaching me that. You know, just being like, all right, well, why doesn't this work for you? And he'd be like, this is how we do it. Go out to the rice field, show me the damn berms. And I'm like, oh God, this isn't going to work. And I was just like, hey, we, this is either going to work for you or we're not going to do it. And we came out with a way to work for each other. So yeah, I treat every conversation as a new conversation. A friend of mine who works as a, in the dairy uh, industry here, I was doing some dairy digester work. And she said, you know, the thing about dairies is this, if you've been to one dairy, You've been to one dairy. <laughs> They're all different. Everyone's different. Land's different. Every, every piece of land is different. Some people, like, it's their life's work. They put it together through generations. They built it up. And, you know, Rob, we were talking, like, you know, you've got, there's all that family history there. And, like, you even call it, it's like, oh, it's Macklin land because, like, it was for generations, that's whose land it was. So, in some places, there are foreign owned places who don't really give a rip. It's just an investment property. Everyone's different. One of the things on land, which is also like a favorite movie thing, is uh, Seinfeld. When people want to go out and get land, and you talk about how you do it, it I, I wanted to say this earlier, like, how do you do it? And like, there's a big push, like, just go out and sign land. Go with a checkbook, give the farmer whatever they want to sign up. It doesn't work. Whenever you put money in front of a farmer to solve their problem, they, they immediately smell BS and they walk away. And I relate it to a Seinfeld episode, the Muffin Top episode. If you ever saw that one, Elaine, Elaine's just like, oh, the muffin top's the best part. And her boss goes out and starts a restaurant that just sells the tops and no one likes them. And she's like, no, 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 you have to make the whole muffin and pop off the top. And that's what I tell people about development and land. It's just like, no, 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 no. You can't just go out and be a land guy and go and be like, sign me up your land. You have to be a whole developer and you have to bring that whole bottom of the muffin with you. And then talk to them about their land. But you've got to know the interconnection. You've got to know how this project's going to work. You've got to know the design of it. You've got to know the whole thing. Because the farmer needs to know what's going on in their land. If you can't answer that, they're not going to trust you. And they're going to, and maybe you get in, maybe you get in a bargaining conversation and you can sign up land like that. But the other secret is, is when you spend the time with them, when the farmer knows it, when the landowner knows it, they become your champion. They understand it as well as you do. They're excited about it. And now you've got something that you need, which is someone who cares about your project.
Well, I was thinking about like the different philosophies of of your team, of mm. the cultures you come up against, and like how you're setting that aside. Like you're setting aside your philosophies to listen, to really listen to the concerns of the people you're working with. And that seems to me pretty uncommon. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I mean, it's very common in this world. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I don't, I think a lot of it is, I, I don't think I set them aside at, at all, actually. I mean, there's, it actually comes from an incredible place of confidence because like, I don't like, I don't personally care if I'm wrong about climate change. I believe climate change is real. I believe humans caused it. I don't, I don't, I, I'm open to being wrong about it. Like, I don't really care. Like, I don't, I also don't think that I would ever be convinced of anything else because of the inputs I've had. But I'm convinced enough that I, I don't mind someone telling me like, no, 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 it's, it's not human cause. And like, we don't need any of this stuff. Like, I'm, I don't mind hearing that. And because it's like, I understand why I believe it. And so it's like, I just, it, it's, I, I'm, I'm open to it. I'm not threatened mm. by it. And I, and I do now that took me a long time. I did a lot of self-reflection of like, like, like Donald Trump. Like I emotionally don't like Donald Trump, but I, I go back and just like, can I have this conversation with someone about a, a, a Trump? And the answer is it's harder to do, but the answer is yes. Cause it's just like, I, I don't need to be emotionally invested in my outcome. Like I, I believe what I believe. If someone else believes what they want to believe that that's fine. I can, identify with them and say, okay, well, it's this, this, and this, and this. And the only place I stop where it does stop is if, if someone, if someone gets to me and says like, if, if the conversation is going to affect, it's like, well, I want you to believe that Trump is the best or the climate change isn't real. And I want you to believe these things. That's where I said, Hey, I'm, I'm, I promise not to convince you that you're wrong. And I promise I'm not going to believe you if you think I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm happy to have the conversation, but if it comes to an argument, just like, you need to believe that Joe Biden's, you know, completely checked out, doesn't do anything. I don't actually need to believe that. I'm happy to hear what you have to say about it, but we can talk about it. But if, if the conversation has to be that, like, you're right, I'm wrong, we can stop the conversation now. It's not going to be a very interesting conversation. And is that the most, com- one of the more common conversations you have with landowners is like uh, whether you're, you're red or blue or, or in those politics? Or no. climate team is real or not real? No, no. Most farmers I meet with, everyone is very practical and is very much just like, what are you going to do to my land? That's what they're concerned about. They don't understand what this is and they want to know what you're going to do to your land. After we get to know each other, I, that's when I start getting the, the elbows and the jabs and the like, you're going to take any more of my tax money, Elon, and you know, like, how you're living in Portland and do you have any Antifa coming with you next time? And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, it, everyone is insanely practical. They're not, I'm sorry, they're not. Everyone's incredibly practical. These are, these are businessmen. It's their farm. It's their livelihood. And they want to know what's what's happening. The, the, yeah. So the, the first conversation is about what it is you what it do you want to do with my land? Yeah. What I noticed, I'm just just a little bit with you and in other places, right? There's a a deep practicality to it mm-hmm. with a smidge of sentimentality. <laughs> yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like like it, mm-hmm. this, this this is my land. This is our land. This is my family's land. This is my space land. You're not going to run my town by making all the right. Is it all that kind of conversation, but just a smidge of that, but it's all, they normally start with the practicality part. I'll say the biggest mistake I ever made, I was with Luigi and he didn't make the mistake, but I did. Um, we had a landowner and we wanted to get his land and we, we, we had just come from his land and we just, it was up on the hill. We drove down and went to go meet him and he was nice. And he goes, Hey, do you want to go up and see my land? And we're like, and he's, he was older. And so I think a lot of our instincts like, no, no, we don't want to drag your 
85 year old bud out on this tractor to get up there. And he's like, no, no, I wanted to show it to you. And we're like, no, no, it's okay. And the reason that was a mistake was he loved his land. He was mm. very, very proud of it. And I think we eventually got Luigi got to deal with him because Luigi's amazing. But um, <laughs> I think we would have gotten much faster if we had gone up there and sat with him and had him tell us like how great his land was and experienced his land from his point. We'd been up there. We're like, yeah, it's beautiful. We get it. They got to tell you, like, you got to be up there with them. You got to be on the dirt with them and like let them show you like, look at this. Let's see how this breaks here. And, you know, the cattle can come up here. There's the watering hole. We got this new fence we just put in. Like you, you got to know what they, what they, what they care about. Yeah. Thanks. What I hear from both of you is just those stories. <laughs> they, they are holding those stories about their land and to be able to share that with you and share it with someone who will listen mm -hmm. and care. Probably means a lot to them. Uh, the, the funniest thing about farmers, I'll say, I had this guy in Eastern Oregon who lived in a population of 100 people. And I was like, he, he could not have been, he didn't like people. Like he was just like, he's not a very sociable guy to captain. And I told him I was working on a project in Fields, Oregon, which has a population of seven. And I was just like, and he's like, oh, I have some property down there. I'm like, really? He goes, it's five hours from where he lived. And I'm like, what do you, what do you, why do you have land down there? Like you have all this beautiful acreage up in Eastern Oregon. I get away from the fucking people. Like you live in a town of a hundred people. You don't see your neighbors. Like you gotta be kidding me. But these guys will talk to you for four hours straight. And like, it seems like you like people. Like you say you don't, but like you're kind of talking. Like I don't mind it, but like you really you should move to the city. You might have more conversations. Yep. Well, next question for me is, like, what do you see as the culture of the renewables industry? Wow, that's a good question. That changes, changes quite a bit. The renewables industry goes up and down. It booms and busts with the policy. I think right now it's so bullish. Everyone is so excited. Everyone's coming in, except some of us salty veterans who are like, who are all these new people here and what are they doing here? Uh, <laughs> and because they, they, they don't seem to be doing it correctly. And we're wondering if they know something we don't. There's, uh, I, I will say, I started in wind and had most of my experience in wind. There was, there was great, there's been great camaraderie around wind developers. Like, it would not be wrong for when I was at Horizon Wind Energy to call up someone at Avangrid, a competitor on a project that we may be certainly competing for a PPA on, which is our main offtake agreement. We might be competing with landowners somewhere else, and it would be perfectly okay for me to say, hey, I'm trying to talk to this county. Do you know any of these people? Have you... Do you have any thoughts on this? Or is there a good biologist you know who knows anything about gray squirrels? Because like we can't find anybody. So there was a lot of a lot of camaraderie in the development era. It's also, you know, the industry is pretty big, right? I mean, you've got the developers like me, and I'd say our crew is is pretty collegial. E even today, like when we're we'll be competing with one each one another, but it's 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 pretty polite. Then you got the finance transaction guys who are a little more removed from the farmers. And that's, I'd say that's kind of Wall Street light there. You know, we worked with a number of Wall Street firms and like some of them are just exactly what you'd imagine in Wall Street. Some of them are, you know, some of these guys feel pretty good about that. They're working on the good side of the fence for once and they kind of like it. So they're, they're a little bit lighter to deal with. But yeah, I, I think the thing that I'm surprised at in the industry coming from the advocacy world that worked for an environmental advocacy group and, there were so many people who were so passionate and very bright about this work. And the industry's not like that. 
Uh, the industry is, you know, I'd say there's way more MBAs in, in the business than there are people with environmental conservation degrees. I would have thought there'd be a lot of environmental conservationists. I would have thought there would be a lot more people who are passionate, who like are in it because of climate change, but like, it's, it's not, I mean, it, it is not a, uh, that's not the driver. So I, I'd say my, my company's a little different from that. Like that's why I got into it. And there's certainly people like it, but the, yeah, the renewable energy culture is, I'd say generally people are happy. I'd say right now people are very young and new and it goes up and down. Like it'll, we're in a bull period. It's going to crash at some point and it'll be bearish again. Yeah. I'd say it's light is how I would say L I G H T. Like it's, it's bright. But it's a pretty big industry to describe the culture in. Okay. Lots of different pieces of it. Yeah, it's interesting how you triggered me was you may all be in it for the same outcome and you may produce the same outcome, but the passion is different. And I guess, does that matter then? I mean, it, it, I think it matters in some senses. Like when I've seen people in the industry who aren't very talented, aren't very good, I get pretty upset because hmm. I know there's a kid out there who wants that job who will crush it. And when I see someone just like, I'm like, how did you get in here? Like how, who hired you? And it's like, some of them are really have zero to offer, which is rare, but like, I think it should be at zero. And some people are like, you know, it's, it's really good business decision. You can make a lot of money. I mean, like I, you know, Luigi and I both worked at Onyx, which is a Blackstone company. And yeah, that was all just like, oh, the upside's great. I'm like, like first word out of my mouth. I'm like, yeah, I guess so. I mean, but I mean, that's good. I mean, again, I, I came into this world because I believe in capitalism and like they get things done. Like you actually do need money to get these things moving. So I'm, I'm very happy for people to get nine, 10, 15, 20% returns. I don't really care. So it's going to be part of it. And it's good that it's part of it. Yeah. Thank you. I have two questions left. And the, this is the next to last one. If you had a magic wand to change something about the industry, right? Like yeah. the culture, the culture uh, of the industry, right? What would you, what would you do? What would you request? What would you do with your magic wand? I, yeah, I mean, I think I would foster learning and development. I mean, I think there would be, I, I'd want a, a premium put on doing this stuff right. I think that there's a lot of move fast, get your project done and, and, and churn these things out. And I think I'd like to see more thought and learning going on and having good developers. When I first got hired at EDPR, I asked, well, actually, it was one of the first meetings we had. And the CEO said, we don't want to be the biggest company. We want to be the best company. We want to have the best projects. Like We want our projects to be the nicest ones, whatever that means. That was very, that was much better than we're going to get two gigawatts in the ground next year. So let's go. Like, it's, it's fine. I mean, my goal is to do the energy transition. So I do want the two gigawatts. But I also like the projects that have, you know, a little bit better mitigation on the environmental side. Spend a little bit more money here. People are a little bit happier. It's a little bit more interesting solution. I, I think that's good. Yeah. Thank you. So, Deb, you want to do the last question? Absolutely. We'd like to ask our guests. So, you can pick favorite movie, favorite book, favorite media, favorite show you binge watch. Do <laughs> you have one of those that you'd like to share with our audience? I mean, I love the West Wing. I mean, I come from a political background and the, the writing is so damn sharp. Um, I just, I'll, I'll watch it over and over again. I like living in that fantasy world where, yeah, that's no, absolute West Wing. And you like, you know, the absolute West Wing fantasy, you know, the, 
world that we can't have, right? Is uh, there's an episode where, and this is why I love it because it's bringing people together. It's win-win. They want to put a Supreme Court justice, somebody died or whatever, and they can't get the person they want because they're too liberal and the Senate's Republican. So they convince the liberal seating justice who's 90 years old, who's like, you know, he's, he, he's the hallmark of the liberal uh, justice. And they say, we want you to step down. And he's like, absolutely not. I wouldn't step down unless you could get this lawyer to replace me. And they said, we can do that. How are you going to do that? We're going we're gonna to go out and we're going to appoint a conservative, a brilliant conservative, to replace the person who died. You're going to step down and you're going to get a brilliant liberal. So we're going to put two justices on the court, one brilliant conservative, one brilliant liberal, and that's how we're going to make all this work. Like, that's what I love. It's just like, that's where you should go. It's just like, we don't, it doesn't have to be, we don't have to fight in inches. Like, we should have great minds. I love, yeah, I'm, I do have a legal education. So I, I have a great respect for the court and great legal minds. And like, I love great conservative minds. They're brilliant. It's fascinating to watch. So yeah, that's what I say. Oh, that's great. That's great. Thanks. Ron, how about you? Yeah, I think I'm going to go with uh, a book I read not too long ago called Reinventing Organizations. Mm. And it really talks about what I call the fifth business revolution. They call it teal organizations. And it really talks about how we're moving away from, uh, we call that hierarchical base organizations to self-led teams. Mm-hmm. And I just see it happening. Like I, I'm a part of it. I can watch it. I can love it. What I love is it really gives everybody a chance inside their own organizations to contribute significantly. Re what is it? Reinventing organizations. Cool. Check it out. Deb, how about you? So Ron, you totally stole mine. Okay. And and for our listeners, like if you want to watch, you can see at the bottom there it says reinventing organizations. <laughs> yeah, that book is so amazing to talk about. I don't know if you could say it's an evolution of the way business are moving. Certainly some businesses are not going to move that way. And I don't know, maybe maybe their culture will make them move that way. But it's really eye-opening in terms of how successful these self-led teams can be and believing in others mm-hmm. and what they can contribute to the world mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is yes. just huge. Yeah, that's that. That's my whole it, yeah. So that's my whole game. So like on the on the campaign trail. So we did hand to hand voter contact, right? So we trained people. Very easy script, and we would hire everybody, literally every. Well, you couldn't have facial tattoos, and we would train them. And like you know, a lot of people would, wouldn't make it, but like there there would there would be these people who were down and out. There were these. I remember this one woman who you know she's definitely a drug addict, and she was clean and. She had had a really hard life and we gave her a job and she wasn't a great reader, but she got through the very simple script and she went home and memorized it. And it was just, are you registered to vote? It wasn't like a very complicated thing. And just watching her independence and self-worth rise with the ability to do something that was asked of her, honestly, that's, that's what I'm trying to recreate every day. Like just, just watching, giving people like your potential is actually up here. And I can show you where the ladder is. Like, I'm not doing it. It's like, it's all you. Like, you can do it. Just, I love that. So oh, I want to check awesome. this book out. I want to check this book out 100%. One of, one of the things I love the most is watching other people accomplish what they don't believe they yes. can accomplish. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because we did believe in them. 
Yeah. And they, and they accomplish something that, that they, they, you can't, nobody will take it away. Yeah. It, it opens a new space for them. It's, it's, yeah, that, that it, 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 honestly, like that is my, that's my dream with this company. If first is climate change, but the second thing is like, so that's why I hire people who don't have experience. Cause like I was, I got hired. I was, I had no qualifications for this job. Like I, my friend called me who knew me, we worked on campaigns together. He was working at Horizon. He said, Hey, you should apply for this job as project manager. And I'm like, I read it. It's a 10 years experience. I said, Chris, I don't, I don't have 10 years experience. He goes, well, I don't have 10 years experience and I'm hiring for the damn thing. So, and like no engineering, no meteorology, no analytics at the time, no finance. I was just like, I don't have anything here. Trust me, learned it and grateful. Thanks, Elon. Thanks for being on our, our podcast today. Thanks for letting me hog the mic. <laughs> well, thanks, Elon. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. At Macklin Connection, we believe making authentic connections with others can literally change your world. We invite you to share this podcast with one person that you care about. Maybe it's someone you haven't spoken with in a really long time and you'd love to reconnect. Or maybe it's the first person that popped into your head when you listened to this podcast because you thought it would be perfect for them. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.